0: Allergy season is just around the corner, and Brio, the innovative air purifier, can help. Brio quickly removes common allergens, including pollen and pet dander, and deep cleans without filter clogging, so it's more effective than HEPA. Brio's long-life filters save you money, too. Breathe easy this spring with Brio, the advanced air purifier that's ideal for every room in your home. And get 15% off Brio using code IHEART at BrioAirPurifier.com.
1: That's code IHEART at B-R-I-O AirPurifier.com. As Natalie promised you last week, we are back together this week and it feels so good. So
0: good. And you know by now, but patrons heard this episode first. When you join, you get episodes one day early, a bonus episode every month, and starting in November, you get all of our episodes ad-free. You also get priority when requesting a case and a shout out on an episode. Speaking of, thanks so much, Ellie. To join the Patreon, click the link in our show notes. Can't wait to see you there.
1: Hey, I'm Paige. And I'm Natalie. We're the hosts of the Murder Diaries podcast.
0: We bonded over tacos and true crime after we matched on Bumble BFF.
1: You know, like any normal millennial using an app to meet new friends. Every Thursday, we upload a new episode. In each episode of the Murder Diaries, we tell true crime one story at a time. One week, it's my turn. And the next week, it's mine. Sierra Lamar was 15 years old when she disappeared on the way to her school bus stop on the morning of March 16, 2012. Investigators were quick to find that Sierra never got the chance to board that bus. Massive searches followed, and a volunteer team formed that searched weekly for over three years for her. DNA would eventually lead to an arrest, but Sierra's remains are still missing. As her find-a-gravesite says, her family prays and hopes one day that can bring Sierra home to a proper resting place. This is her story. You still think it's in my head, but I'm walking with the dead. Sierra May Lamar was born October nineteenth, nineteen 1996. That's the day before this was released. And technically on the East Coast, this was released 9 p.m. on her birthday, which would have been her 26th birthday. Honestly, that came to us as a complete surprise when we began researching this episode. And we're really happy that it can be just an extra way to honor Sierra with this episode. That aside, she was born to her parents, Steve and Marlene, and her big sister, Danielle, who was six years older. She was primarily raised in Northern California's Bay Area, spending her first 15 years of life in Fremont, California. Eventually, Marlene and Steve did divorce. With that in mind and Danielle off to college in October of 2011, Sierra and Marlene moved to Morgan Hill. Marlene had met a new partner and she wanted to be closer to them. It was also somewhat of a new start for the two. As the episode of See No Evil titled Come Home Sierra puts it, Sierra was the joyful heartbeat of her family. Her mom calls her charismatic. Sierra had a gift for bringing people up when they were down, and she had a big, beautiful smile that people were naturally drawn to. She was a people person, and she did enjoy this attention. Her dad says that she was outgoing and loved to goof off with her friends. In fact, a friend of hers, Hannah, says that it was hard to even understand or explain just how goofy Sierra was unless you were with her in person. Despite this outgoing and personable nature, Sierra also had a softer side, a more serious side. As many teen parent relationships go, Sierra and her mom had their ups and downs, sometimes fighting out their differences. Danielle explains that the divorce, rightfully so, wasn't easy on either of the sisters. Divorces are obviously complex. I don't think I need to explain that to any of you. And in Sierra's case, it meant a move to Morgan Hill eventually once Marlene had met that new partner. And both of her parents agree she struggled with this move. She took to Twitter to express herself on February 22nd, 2012. Hashtag confession night. Moving schools in high school this year is way too hard. Things won't ever be the same. That sucks. It should come at no surprise, but most of Sierra's friends were in Fremont still, although she was starting to settle in more and more in Morgan Hill. You can't blame a 15-year-old for not wanting to start over at a new high school like Sierra had to do. We just heard a quote from Twitter of Sierra expressing herself about this, but she wasn't shy about it with her mom either. She used to say things to her like, quote, I wish I was in Fremont. That's what was going on for Sierra when we get to March 16th, 2012, the day she went missing. It was a typical day. Marlene left for work as a physical therapist around 6 a.m. Sierra was set to go to school, leaving a little bit later, around 7.20. Sierra's typical ride to school was the bus. To get to her bus stop, Sierra would normally walk to the end of her cul-de-sac that they lived on, and then about 500 feet or so down Daughtry Avenue. The bus stop was placed at Palm and Daughtry Avenue. This was basically a personal bus stop for Sierra because no other students used it. The only thing between Sierra Street and the intersection of Palm and Daughtry, which again was where the bus stop was, is a farm and active garden center called Grass Farm, that's on one side of Daughtry, and then there's some open land on the other side. That land might also be owned by the farm. I'm not too sure, but basically, it's kind of rural. It's a lot of open land right where that bus stop is. The high school, Ann Sobrado High School, where Sierra was a sophomore at the time, was about five or ten minutes drive away. As Marlene got out of work later that day and made her way home, she called Sierra, as she did every day as she exited the parking lot from work. She expected Sierra to answer and still be at school waiting to get on the bus home. Again, this is just like any other weekday. Only Sierra didn't answer this time. When she got home, Marlene checked all of the rooms in the house, wondering maybe she would find Sierra napping or something. She quickly realized Sierra wasn't napping or at home at all for that matter. She started getting a little bit upset, thinking maybe Sierra was with a friend and hadn't told her and was now maybe avoiding her calls or something.
0: I mean, could we really put it past a teenager? I certainly wouldn't blame Marlene for thinking this first.
1: Yeah, you definitely can't put this past a teenager and Morgan Hill's a pretty safe community. It's ranked 45 on the 50 safest cities in California list by SafeWise for 2022. That's quite a feat considering California has a lot of cities. So back to Marlene, though. So she's at home wondering where Sierra is and what's going on. She contacts Ann Soprato High School and is informed that Sierra didn't attend that day. She was absent for every class. I want to note that while the See No Evil episode says Marlene contacted the school, NBC stated in an article that she was notified by the attendance monitoring notification system. A lot of schools, at least in the U.S., have this where If your child is absent, but no one's called in for that absent, you're going to get a notification. That aside, these two resources sort of contradict each other, but it's possible that maybe she was contacted by the auto-notification system and then called the school. I'm not sure, but either way, Sierra never made it to school. The anxiety starts to grow for Arlene, and she calls Sierra's dad, Steve, to let him know what's going on. He hadn't heard from Sierra either, so the two of them decided that Marlene should call around to some of Sierra's friends and see if they had heard from her or if maybe she was with them. And Steve got in his car and headed down to Morgan Hill from his home in Fremont to support and figure out what was going on. During her round of phone calls, Marlene called Sierra's longtime friend, Hannah. Hannah was a friend from Fremont, and Marlene was sobbing when she was speaking with her. Hannah tells Marlene that Sierra's not with her, and come to find out, She hadn't received a text from her all that day. That's when the panic really set in. Marlene was frantically calling Sierra with no answer. And by 5.30 or 6 p.m., with daylight waning, she called 911. We couldn't get access to the actual 911 call, but Natalie and I are going to read it through here. I'm concerned my daughter's missing and she didn't show up to school. We're worried she was abducted. That's okay. I'm going to get some information from you and we're going to have a deputy come and talk to you, okay? Okay. What's your daughter's name? Sierra Lamar. And do you happen to know what she was wearing this morning? Actually, no, because um, she usually, I leave for work and then she gets dressed. Obviously, I wasn't there, but Marlene is almost in another world during this call and her voice starts to break with tears as the dispatcher and she continue their conversation. As deputies responded, of course, it was called into question if Sierra might've been a runaway, wanting to go back to Fremont or something like that. But Lieutenant Quinones from Santa Clara Sheriff's Office says that while they do get a lot of 15, 16-year-old runaway cases, these children often end up calling their parents or show back up at home within just a few hours. This wasn't happening in Sierra's case, but law enforcement still said that required someone to be missing for a certain amount of time before they could be considered missing. As always, we want to remind our listeners that
0: there is no federal requirement. I repeat that, no federal requirement that makes law enforcement make you wait a certain amount of time before you can make a missing person's
1: report or your loved one to be considered missing. The next day, after 24 full hours since Sierra had last been seen, she was officially logged as a missing person. Investigators begin to search for Sierra and speak with her friends. Hannah says that's when she knew just how serious it was. She emphasizes the word interrogated when she reflects on her experience being questioned about Sierra and if she was a runaway. In her questioning, Hannah agreed that, yes, Sierra was unhappy with the recent move, so of course investigators were going to wear this runaway theory out. Detectives became more confident for a bit in their runaway theory when a friend from Morgan Hill that was also questioned mentioned that Sierra had expressed to her before that she wanted to run away. And look, who knows when this was said or under what circumstances. Sierra was a teenager after all, and a lot of teenagers have thoughts like this as they work through becoming an adult and gaining independence. I was thinking those same thoughts. Either way, we know now Sierra wasn't a runaway, and luckily investigators were hard at work retracing Sierra's steps from March 16th so that they could establish some kind of timeline. Part of that, of course, is figuring out who the last person to see Sierra was. That was Marlene.
0: Marlene may have been the last person to see Sierra, but was she the last person to hear
1: from her? Nope, she wasn't. Sierra had texted a friend around 7, 10 a.m. In this message, Sierra and the friend were coordinating. They were going to meet up so that they could exchange some homework and some makeup that morning, as one does when they're 15. No, seriously, though, a friendly makeup and homework exchange might not sound significant, but it really is in Sierra's case. This exchange is significant because it's documentation that Sierra was making plans, and plans that were to take place soon nonetheless. And that doesn't seem like something a person would do if they're planning on running away. Law enforcement thought the same thing and they continued their timeline creation. They figured Sierra left around 7.20 to be at the bus stop by 7.25. Her walk to the bus stop, by the way, isn't even half a mile, not even a full kilometer. Anyways, the next step for investigators would be to find out if there were any surveillance cameras along her walking route to the bus stop. There weren't any along the route, but the bus did have surveillance cameras. It had cameras that surveilled inside and outside of the bus. This was obviously to enable the bus to monitor who was getting on and off and things like that. Detectives were obviously interested in checking the video from March 16th around 7.25 a.m. The surveillance footage showed that Morgan Hill USD bus 20 pulled up to Sierra's stop and there was no Sierra. This made it clear that after the text message with her friend, Sierra never made it to the bus or at least was gone within around the 15 minutes between the text and the bus arriving to the bus stop. So that
0: leaves about an hour and a half from 6 a.m. to 7.25 for investigators to try and sort this out. We know we have the text to her friend at 7.10, But what about any social media? Is there anything there?
1: Sierra was incredibly active on social media, especially her Twitter. So investigators were wondering that same thing. They didn't find much, but there was a quick retweet around 6.29 a.m. And they found that Sierra had taken a selfie on her computer at about 7 a.m. and then posted it to Facebook more than adding information within the 6 a.m. to 7.25 timeline investigators were working on, this selfie showed investigators what Sierra wore that day. Well, the top at least. It was a San Jose Sharks crew neck sweatshirt, which is the local professional hockey team. Besides that post around 7 and the text around the same time at 7.10, there wasn't any other activity from Sierra. After that, she basically went radio silent, which again is not like Sierra. She had literally tweeted, 5,554 times since she joined in May of 2011. 20 of those tweets were from the day before she went missing alone. This radio silence made them start moving forward with a possible abduction. Marlene echoes saying that she never believed Sierra ran away. She knew deep down that was never it. Now that it was a possible abduction, media appearances from the family and law enforcement kicked into high gear to gain traction and hopefully get some leads. A large search for Sierra also began with 300 mutual aid searchers in the area. Detectives in the meantime spoke to every sexual offender in a five-mile circumference from where she went missing. All roughly 250 offenders were eventually cleared. It took 20 teams of two officers to get that work done. It's around this time that Lieutenant Quinones gets a phone call from Steve Sierra's dad, and he informs him proactively that he is a registered sex offender. He didn't want them to find out later and think that he was hiding it. He'd been convicted of lewd and lascivious acts against minors under 14 in 2009. Mercury News reports that he was originally charged with 10 counts of molesting girls that his daughter had over for sleepovers. He pled no contest to one of the charges. It was considered a misdemeanor according to See No Evil, and he served one year. We want to be clear here at The Murder Diaries that we really don't know the full story and we aren't asserting any opinions. And honestly, we're not really talking about whatever had happened. This episode is about Sierra, who Steve loved very much. In regards to her case, he was nothing but cooperative and he was ruled out as a suspect. He was at work about 20 miles away and that was verified easily. Detectives didn't stay very focused on whatever happened with Steve and the focus was finding Sierra. The day after she went missing, investigators were in luck. Her phone started pinging intermittently. It was pinging to a tower about half a mile from Sierra's house and thus not far from her bus stop either. Investigators had no idea what was going on though. Was Sierra turning it off and on? Was someone else? They wanted to get to the area and fast. A search team was dispatched to the area and they found her cell phone in a quote, large open field with tall grass. Marlene was able to identify it as her daughter's phone, and that's when the family knew without a shadow of a doubt their worst fears were coming through. As her sister Danielle puts it, we knew Sierra is not somewhere she wants to be right now if she dropped her phone. Knowing that it was found in the middle of a field, it makes me wonder what was making it ping off and on. Well, it had rained the night before, so it's believed by law enforcement that it had maybe been short-circuiting or something like that due to a liquid intrusion. Regardless, with the phone in hand, investigators returned to the bus surveillance. They decided to take another look to see if they could find any more clues. What they were worried about is that Sierra's routine was the same every day. She took the same bus and walked the same route to the bus stop day after day every weekday. This would have made it easy for someone to catch on to her routine and use this knowledge to abduct her. They searched and searched the footage from the bus's camera to see if they could find any clues clues that someone might have been following her or stalking her. There weren't any breakthroughs there, but a breakthrough did come on March 18th, just two days after Sierra went missing. About two miles from her home, on a rural road near some storage sheds, Sierra's black purse was found. A few resources, including an initial news report, incorrectly state that it was a pink, juicy couture bag, but the actual police photos showed in See No Evil are of a black purse. Inside of Sierra's bags were her jeans, socks, bra, underwear, a school notebook, and a few other things amongst what you would expect to find in a purse, like a cute purple animal print mirror compact, her keys, inhaler, things like that. Most importantly, it had the sweatshirt that she'd been wearing in the selfie photo from the morning she went missing, the shark's crew neck. The clothing was sent to a lab for analysis and, of course, swabbed for DNA, What came back was more than law enforcement was expecting. The lab found lichen on the clothes, and to learn more about what this meant, investigators called in a botanist. The botanist explained that this type of lichen had to have a water source, and it only grows in certain areas. Glass beads that aid in the reflection of roadways were also found. Lieutenant Kinona says that this told them that Sierra was most likely dragged down a road and through an area that the lichen identified grew. The captain of Santa Clara Sheriff's Office says that they searched everywhere they could within a 300-mile radius using this information. They searched on the ground and in the air, infrared, you name it. They could not find Sierra. It wasn't over yet, though. The DNA found on Sierra's clothing was entered into CODIS, and on March 22nd, it came back as a match for Antolin Garcia-Torres. He's described by Lieutenant Quinones as a 21-year-old arborist who used to work for Safeway. Sierra nor her family knew Antolin, so this told investigators that there was no reason for his DNA to be on her clothes, unless maybe he was the abductor and assaulter. The material they got the DNA from, after all, was identified as semen. With this new match, investigators started surveilling Antolin, quote, in many different forms that same day. They needed more information on Antolin. According to one of the sheriffs, DNA wasn't enough to arrest him right away, and they needed to figure out if he was still holding Sierra somewhere or what was going on with him. I'm curious about these different forms of surveillance. It's very impressive. One of the most important forms was two undercover officers that posed as a couple and moved in near him at the Maple Leaf RV park where he was living with his girlfriend and daughter. This RV park was about seven miles from Sierra's home. By doing this, one of the most important things they noticed wasn't necessarily something that Antolin did, but it was that the RV park had a camera. Investigators decided to look at the footage from March 16th on this camera, and lo and behold, it shows Antolin leaving at 8 a.m. However, the sun was still rising, which isn't quite right for 8 a.m., and it turns out that the clock on the camera had just never been adjusted for the time change, so it was really 7 a.m. This would match the time for when Sierra went missing and how long it would have taken him to drive the seven miles to the bus stop area. Moreover, investigators checked his time card from work. Antolin never showed up on the 16th, despite leaving at 7 a.m. as he normally would have for work. So where was he going? The camera also shows Antolin returning to the RV park around 12.57 p.m., almost six hours later. Less than a week after the surveillance had begun, they concluded by antolin's movement that he doesn't have Sierra kept somewhere, that unfortunately she may not be alive. Investigators decided it was time to speak with him. They wanted to give him a consensual vibe like he was in control when they did, but they wanted to see what he would tell them. Lieutenant Quinones describes him during his interview as a straight sociopath. When asked if he had any type of relationship with Sierra, his response was, I doubt it, why? The first time I ever seen her was on the news. With those two simple quotes, he effectively removed himself from Sierra, confirming there would be no reason for his DNA to be on her clothing once again. Investigators were hoping now that Antolin might be a little bit nervous thinking that they were on to him since they spoke with him. And with these nerves, they were hoping that he might somehow lead them to Sierra, whether she was alive or not. After three days of no Sierra, they got warrants to search his RV and to seize his car, a 1998 Red Jetta. They also brought him back in for questioning. In regards to March 16th, he says he left his home at 7 a.m. and was basically on autopilot and ended up having to turn up Palm to correct his direction or something to that effect. Sierra's bus stop was on Palm. With that information, he puts himself, as Lieutenant Quinona says, quote, dead smack in the middle of our crime scene at the time, the exact time we believed him to be going there. Antolin also told investigators that he cashed a check at Bank of America before 1 p.m., which is perfect for the investigators' timeline. The Bank of America he says he went to, it was right by the RV park where he lived, and this would make it easy for him to be home by the 1257 mark that they already clocked from the surveillance footage. Antolin was telling the truth about going to BFA. The investigators confirmed this with the B CCTV footage. But they found something else interesting in this CCTV footage. The bottom of Antolin's jeans are darker than the rest, as if they were muddy or wet. Like they'd been somewhere where the lichen grows that they found on Sierra's clothing. Another noteworthy piece of info was that there had been two attempted abductions at the Safeway where Torres worked just a few years back before Sierra went missing. Investigators took a look at the sketch that had been created from one of the attempted abductions, and it was a remarkable likeness. They were sure it was Angelin. In one of the abduction attempts, the perpetrator dropped the stun gun that they had. Investigators pulled the print from the battery. It wasn't a good enough print to be fed into the general matching system, but it was good enough for an expert to analyze against Antolin's prints. And guess what? It was a match. Investigators now knew they were dealing with a serial predator. Which sounds to me like he escalated over time, like we know a lot of offenders do investigators didn't want him escalating any more. When Sierra's DNA and fingerprints were found in his car on the rear door handle and a pair of gloves and a large rope with Sierra's hair on it was found in his trunk, the evidence had mounted enough. He was arrested May 21st, 2012. The following day, May 22nd, Marlene released the following statement. I would like to thank the community outreaching to find Sierra and all their time and efforts that have gone into this. We continue to pray until she's found. Our search is still not going to end. As a mother, I'm hopeful because her body has not been found, and that gives me hope. I do have a plea to the perpetrator to please give me the information that you have to lead us to Sierra to help end this nightmare. I would like you to come forward and say where she is and end this nightmare for us as a family. We don't know exactly what happened that day, but it's likely that Antolin had been stalking Sierra, learning her routine and on the 16th, sexually assaulted and murdered her. Antolin was found guilty May 2017 of not just Sierra's murder, but also the three attempted abductions from that Safeway. He has yet to admit where Sierra's remains are. Moments after the judge denied the defense's last-minute attempt to request a new trial, Antolin was sentenced to life without parole in December of 2017. Before his sentence was delivered by the judge, Marlene gave the following victim impact statement at Antolin's sentencing. I find it incomprehensible that you made the choice to commit a heinous, violent crime and murder an innocent child. You have caused great pain to both our family and yours. We will never know if Sierra could have become the dancer she dreamed of through creative makeup artist she thought she could be and the counselor who might have shaped someone's life in the right direction." You robbed Sierra of what God had planned for her and the lives she could have changed. You can choose to make the right choice and repent, end the torment by telling us where Sierra is. The impact statement goes on, but I wanted to leave this episode with that poignant excerpt from it. Until our next episode, you know where to find us. At com, at themurderdiariespod on TikTok and Instagram, and at request at gmail.com. And if you haven't already, go ahead and give us five stars. It helps us keep sharing stories like Sierra's.
0: And until then, stay safe. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s.